We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Are you exhausted? Not just tired, but completely world-weary. Something a good night's sleep or an empty weekend or even a holiday cannot touch. What I'm going to suggest to revive you will probably seem completely and utterly off the wall. A fairy tale. Why? Because when the problem is buried deep under the surface, you need to find a fresh way in. My witness today is Dr. Libby Nugent, who is a clinical psychologist and a group work practitioner from the Welsh-English borders. Now, Libby, you use fairy tales and myths and legends a lot in your work. Mm -hmm. Why? I suppose the easy answer, and probably the least professional in some ways, is that because I like them, I think that they speak and, and they're fun. I think fairy tales are a way of equalising something in the therapy relationship. Most people might feel a bit unnerved if you start talking about attachment theory or unconscious processes. But if you actually say, oh, this reminds me of Cinderella, or gosh, there's something about this that sounds a little bit like Pinocchio, that normally kind of makes people sit up a little bit more. All of a sudden you're in a conversation, you know, people have thoughts about Cinderella and, you know, feminist thoughts or reactions and memories from being little. They have thoughts about Pinocchio. You know, obviously it only works if people know the story, <laughs> but it's a way in. I think we all know the stories, these stories, and even if we don't know the stories, they still have a great richness to them. Because, and this is what I tell my clients when on occasions I do work with them, this is the collective wisdom of all of our ancestors. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I think one of the things that isn't really understood about fairy tales and is, is that they've been around a really long time, that they weren't invented by Walt Disney. They weren't invented by the Grimm brothers, which, you know, people kind of nowadays may still have heard of the Grimm brothers. The Grimm brothers just collected some up and they collected ones up in kind of Europe, but actually fairy tales and myths and legends exist in every culture and in every land. And they're ways of kind of conveying ideas about the world. And what's really fascinating about fairy tales, say something like Cinderella, is that it exists, the Cinderella story, it's not called Cinderella, it's sometimes called Aschenpostel in Germany, I think it's Wei Shen in China, Rodopus, I think, in Turkey and Greece, but it, it occurs in, in every continent. I mean, it's extraordinary. And the same symbols and imagery kind of pop up in each place as well. So the small feet and the abandon, you know, the loss of a parent, the working in servitude, the wealthy prince or emperor that comes along. Sometimes unusual symbols like the singing birds are, are there. And and all of a sudden it's like, oh why why are we holding on 
to these stories? You know, why do people kind of attach themselves to them? What do we think that's important about them? And all of a sudden you're in a conversation, you know, what does it mean to have small feet? What does it mean to want a prince to rescue you? (laughs) So what does it mean to have small feet then? Oh, well, I guess the nature of archetypes and symbols is that it can mean lots and lots of different things. You know, that there isn't any one single meaning. And actually part of psychological well-being is psychological flexibility. It's understanding that one thing can mean very, very different things to different people, depending on perspective. So something like small feet, you could think of as foot binding. We could think of it as female oppression and from patriarchy. Not taking up much space. Not taking up much space. We can think about it in other ways. We can think about it in terms of global footprint. If you have small feet, chances are you can't walk as far. So you have a kind of a small footed life. You could also be more nimble. You know, my mother Mm -hmm. was small, but she always claimed she was far nippy. And when on the sports field, she could nip round other people that small feet to her were an advantage. Yeah, that you can somehow, you can be light footed maybe if you have small feet, that you can kind of need less containment by a a sock or a shoe object. There's less material, it's less expensive to have small feet. The idea of feet as well, that somehow small feet might make it easier for you to find space on the ground and to live a grounded life is actually very important. And so you can start to play around with these ideas and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, do I live a small-footed life? Am I nimble? How much containment do I need? What is my global footprint? You can see it can go off in all sorts of different directions. It's interesting that I'm speaking to you from Berlin and I'm Mm. just literally a few kilometres from where the Grimm's brothers are actually buried here in Berlin. And I've actually been there, which is a a, a wonderful um, ancient um, cemetery. Mm. But the big difference here in Germany is these are called the Märchen, which just means the stories. It's actually in English that they've become fairy tales and we think they're mm-hmm. just for children, but actually they're for everybody, aren't they? They are for everybody. And and some of them are really not for children at all. <laughs> or what we tend to do kind of in more modern days, we edit out the kind of the darker bits. And so we sanitize them. And there's something, you know, difficult about that actually, that we try and kind of slice up our stories and imagine that we can only really cherry pick out the bits that we want. And there's a lot to be said actually in fairy tales about understanding their history and their context. And so I'm just trying to think of one like Hansel and Gretel is probably a fairly classic one that was part of the the writing down of it and the sanitizing it for children really was part of the creation of the wicked stepmother. You know, the, the original Hansel and Gretel kind of oral tradition tale. It was just a mother. It was a mother in a famine. They couldn't afford to feed their children. There was nothing there. So she made a choice, a really difficult choice, which was we need to send them into the woods and leave them. And then the story unfolds. And at the end of that story, she dies. And and we can imagine, you know, why a woman who's abandoned her children might end up dying. 
If you take Snow White, we know that once again as the wicked stepmother. But my understanding is the original Snow White, it was her own mother. And actually, you must know this as well. There are lots of mothers who are in competition with their daughters. And we cannot say that anymore. And by sanitising the story, it makes it hard to actually look at that point where, you know, mothers can be in competition with their daughters often for the attention of the man of the household, the husband. Absolutely. And I think these are things that when we dust off some of the layers of stories, we start to see that these problems have been around a long time. And there's something, I mean, a bit depressing about that, but there's also something quite liberating about it. You know, that women have struggled with envy of their children And children have struggled with being envied by their mothers for a very, it's ancient. It's ancient. And fathers and sons are just as Mm, bad. So we're not pointing a finger in a particular direction. No, it's not. And I think it's really important when playing with stories. And this is about play. When we play with stories that we understand that these things that happen in the outside world, in material reality with bodies and biological sex and and all that kind of stuff and the social structures around it. We're, We're also talking about these things happening symbolically and internally. And so we're talking about inner mothers, inner fathers, inner children, inner masculine, inner feminine, and that the masculine and feminine principles exist in every single person. You know, nobody is just masculine, nobody's just feminine. And so they start to become stories not only of how we might understand certain realities in the outside world, but also, you know, what's going on inside us as well. And I think that is something really important because we live in a very literal world. And Mm. if you say mothers and daughters in competition, you sort of almost imagine them pushing each other out of the way to reach the fridge first sort of kind of idea, which is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is something actually sort of deeper, symbolic, and sort of natural, because why wouldn't you be jealous of somebody who's young and full of potential when you're reaching the middle part of your life? And I really love that example you've just given there, because that can be a very literal example. You know, people literally do have squabbles in the kitchen over, you know, who's eaten what from the fridge and who's, you know, who had the last yogurt and who left the milk lid off. And these are kind of sort of trivial, but actually can be quite explosive, you know, because you're not really arguing about who ate the last yogurt. But they're also like internal principles. So if we have learnt a particular principle of mothering, which might be you always put other people first, and then we give birth to a younger, more beautiful daughter that still has things to learn, but might have something about boundaries, something about saying no that becomes important. And that's a different way of mothering. It's a, it's a new feminine principle. These two really might go into a lot of headbutting and and tension with each other. And then if we hear the fridge as kind of a place of where the food is, where the nourishment is, where the resource is, then there might be a fight about who gets access to the resource. And by that, I mean, you know, how much time do you give to putting other people first? How much time do you give to, to boundaries? Which bit do you choose to grow and nurture and nourish? And which bit has to go hungry? And how much is um, are the resources 
communal, which everybody eats at the same time, and how much of it is private that you can nourish yourself when you need it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you do start to wonder about, well, who else is in the family? You know, is there another parent? Is that the same sex parent, different parent? You know, do they have a different attitude? Are there brothers around? Are there siblings? And all of a sudden it's kind of like, oh, this is quite interesting. I'm quite interesting. So what I was sort of really interested in doing is taking a situation I get a lot in my therapy room where people are just exhausted by life. Mm. They're world-weary, I think is the way of putting it, but it's something just more than just being tired. Mm-hmm. It often happens when you feel like you've got a lot of responsibility, lots of people are counting on you, and you're sort of stuck with this. It's like a never-ending never-ending yeah. set of tasks. And so I thought I would ask you to share with us a story that might illustrate and help us look at this whole business of being world-weary in a different way. And you've chosen a Grimm's fairy tale, which is Mm -hmm. uh, really appropriate for for me. And it's called Frau Holle, or sometimes in English it's called Mother Hulda. So tell us the story, because it's one that I don't think Walt Disney is going to be doing this one anytime soon. No, I would be surprised. Though you never know, you never know. So the story of Frau Holle, you might want to think about it as being a kind of abstraction of Cinderella. So the lead character or heroine in the story is sometimes referred to as Cinderella when people are telling this story. And the story begins about a woman, a widow, and she's living with her two daughters. She has two children. The older daughter is her stepdaughter, not her biological daughter. And she's incredibly beautiful and she's very, very industrious and she spends all her time spinning and weaving. The younger daughter is a bit stupid, that would be the words used, and she's quite ugly, she's not very pretty, but she's the biological daughter of this mother. And the younger daughter is hugely favoured, she's indulged, she's, she doesn't have to go to work, she doesn't actually know how to spin, she's really sort of left alone to kind of just do what she likes, really. She's often described as lazy, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly the right word. And so the older daughter is put out to work and she's put out to work by a a high, it's on a road and um, it's often by a well and she spins and she spins and she spins and she does this day in and day out. And then one day she notices she's spinning so hard that there's blood on her hands and she wants to wash it off. And so she puts her hands in the well, but in doing that, she drops her spindle down the well. She panics. She doesn't know what to do. So she goes back home and the mother says, well, this is no good. Typical of you. You need to go back and get it. So the older daughter does as she's told and she goes to the well and she reaches in, but it's really deep and she falls and she falls right down to the bottom and she comes in when she comes around and kind of wakes up. She's in a completely different land, a completely different land. And she's in the land of Frau Holle. She doesn't know this yet, but that's where she is. And she tries to orientate herself. And so she goes for a walk and she comes across different, and this is where I'll probably summarise it a bit, but different kind of experiences. So there's a tree that 
nuts, apples need picking, and there's an oven whose bread is ready to be taken out. And as she meets each of these challenges, she kind of does what's asked. She kind of, she goes with what's presented to her. She's generally a very helpful and willing person, isn't she? Yeah, she is. And she wants to kind of do it right. That would kind of be the her kind of principle, I think. She likes to do things right. And so she eventually comes across for our holler and she's scared. This woman has big teeth and a big nose. But Frau Holler invites her in and says, look, I'll look after you as long as you change my sheets. And, and when you, you know, change them, you need to change them so hard that all the feathers fly into the sky. And so she's like, okay. And, that, and that's what she does. And she stays there a long time. And she's being really cared for, really cared for. And that's unusual to her. She's not used to that. But she starts to get homesick. She starts to want to go back to her mother and to her sister. And so she speaks to Frau Holler and Frau Holler says, well, I can't keep you here, but you know, if that's what you want to do, fine. And she says, yes. And so she does want to go home. So that's what she does. She goes back to her homeland. And Frau Holler gives her one last gift. And that is whenever she speaks, gold comes out of her mouth. Now, her mother's thrilled by this. Wouldn't we all be? <laughs> Wouldn't we all be? My gosh, you like suddenly there's wealth everywhere. You and I would be the richest people going, wouldn't we? Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? That's all I can say. Can you imagine? So the mother's like, right, I want more. I want more. And so it's not enough just that her oldest daughter has it. So she decides to send her the younger, lazy, stupid daughter. So she goes off, she kind of does what she's told. She climbs down the well and she sort of sees these sort of similar tasks the way the older daughter did, but she just does a rush job or not at all. Yeah, I mean, the attitude is the bread can get itself out of the oven, really, (laughs) isn't it? Sort of kind of thing, you know, I've got better things to do with my time. Well, she's goal-orientated. She's goal-orientated. She knows she's got to get to the house and she's not going to be distracted by these time-wasting, pointless Ah. activities. So she's got her eye on the prize and that's where she heads off to. And so she goes because she knows she just, in her mind, she just has to, you know, make some kind of relationship with this woman, you know, help a bit and then off she'll, you know, that she'll go home and she'll get gold too. And of course it doesn't work like that, you know, because she doesn't ever quite, you know, shake the sheets out so the feathers fly vigorously, that she doesn't ever quite get involved She doesn't inhabit the task, does she? She doesn't inhabit the task. She doesn't let go of the goal. Mm. She doesn't let go of the goal. She's all about getting home. She doesn't let things naturally arise, naturally occur. She's just onto the next thing, onto the next thing, onto the next thing. And so when it comes for her to go home, and she does, and that's what she chooses, and that's what she's allowed to do, she's not given gold coming out of her mouth. What she is, is covered in tar. Sticky tar or pitch is is another way of thinking about it. And that's, that's left with her. That's left with her. And we can think about, you know, that in lots of different ways. And this story, I think it might not initially seem very obvious why this story is about kind of weariness. You know, it's some, we're sort of saying, what isn't the industrious hardworking one rewarded more because that's kind of what it sounds like and I think that is the superficial attitude you know that you know hard work 
wins the day. But actually, the story is about where are you applying that hard work and what are you putting it into service of? You know, what are you in service of? How do you, and I know how this, the nature of this podcast, how do you make meaning? And if we fix ourselves on goals and avoid certain tasks that are right in front of us, often that can feel a bit pointless or empty, that connect us with the here and now, connect us with nature, connect us with, like you say, the, the embodiment of life, we will miss it and we will become weary. So there's some symbols here that mm-hmm. come up quite a lot. There's a lot of spinning in, fair, in the fairy tale mm. world. I mean, we've got Sleeping Beauty and her spinning wheel. We've yeah. got the the beautiful daughter here spinning away, and and you could probably come up with. I think Rapunzel is spending her time in her spinning up yeah, in the top of her the tower as well. Rapunzel too, yeah, yeah. Because I think isn't Rapunzel able to spin straw into gold or something like that? Or at least there's somebody that's who spins Rumpelstiltskin. 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 That's Rumpelstiltskin. That spin. So spinning anyway is quite a theme. Mm. Why? Because these things are here for a reason always in stories. So why spinning? Well, spinning, you know, in terms of kind of task allocation, traditionally, spinning was a female task. And it was a female task not to do with childcare or child rearing. I guess the task of spinning is taking the raw material of wool you know, from sheep and the kind of that manual labour side would often be done more by kind of men, shepherds, farmers. And the wool would crush the threshold into the home or into the communal building if people are doing it in a community way. And then the women would take up the task of spinning. And that's actually where we get the word spinster from as well. If you think about it, it's, it's a woman that doesn't have children. And so it's this task where you're being of kind of of service and of use to the community. You have independence and agency as a woman. You're also, you're having a creative life with spinning. You're making kind of material and cloth was of huge value. I mean, it still is, you know, if we, if we think about how much time and investment people put into dress and clothes and what we wear. And so it's this kind of all-encompassing kind of symbol around feminine creativity, I think, and the different parts that comes with that. And spinners would often work in groups, sometimes in isolation. And a lot of fairy tales were told amongst spinners, which is also maybe why it's such a popular job that people kind of have in the stories, because it would have been the spinners that were telling them to each other. And so there's kind of an element of recognition that would happen within that. I think there's also an idea from Greek myth of the fates that are actually mm-hmm. spinning the destiny of people. So yeah. it has that element to it as well of of something about fate involved in it too. It has something about fate. So it comes up with the three fates and the three sisters that are doing the spinning. Spinning comes up also with in the Greek myths around the idea of arachnia who was a human who challenged one of the goddesses to a spinning and weaving competition. And there's lots of different endings to that, but that's kind of how spiders were created. I don't think it ended well, to be perfectly honest, when you're trying to challenge the gods. No, well, well, it depends. I mean, she got immortality because she's a spider now. But at the same time, you know, that idea of everybody also ignores her beautiful spinning. 
And so it's an underappreciated kind of task as well, often spinning. It's not always valued, certainly nowadays, as highly as it could be or was. And we're going down a well. We have a lot Mm. of wells and water in fairy tales. Tell me about that. So again, if we think about, so it can be really helpful when we think about symbols to think about them in that very literal way and think about them actually as an object. So a well in a community is a really important item. You know, it has an incredibly important function. Without wells, communities die. We need clean water and, you know, having a a well-supported well is necessary for that. So it's this sort of vital force. So it's a place where community would come together as well to kind of get the water for the different tasks. Wells also are linked with kind of magical fairies and there's a lot of kind of stories around mysterious things happening around wells. So lots of folk tales will incorporate, you know, the twist being near a well somehow. There's also, as I guess, a kind of tradition in fairy tales, falling down a well is a thing that seems to happen to women quite a bit. (laughs) And I guess most of us won't have in real life fallen down a well. I mean, it's a pretty terrifying thing to imagine, really. But the symbol of it, the idea of getting stuck down somewhere that you can't quite get out of, that you just don't know how to get out of this situation. And getting out of it probably will involve getting help from somebody else. It's unlikely to get out of a well by yourself. You're going to need somebody in the community to listen, to have heard you. You can't be seen very easily when you're in a well. And that actually is quite symbolically, that's a quite a common experience for people to get stuck in something, lost in something, that really only talking to others and getting help from others is going to get them out of that situation. In an initiation wise, in terms of male and femaleness, men tend, in stories, men tend to go off and fight dragons and women tend to fall down wells. They're kind of the, the story arcs of that. And I guess sometimes getting pregnant or getting into a difficult relationship for women is a bit like falling down a well. And we've got some sort of very black and white things. We've got the, uh, for want of a better word, the wicked stepmother Mm. up on the surface. And then we've got the nurturing mother underground, so to speak. We've got, uh, for want of a better word, the pretty daughter and the ugly daughter, the hardworking Mm. daughter and the lazy daughter. What do these sort of divisions into good and bad help us understand? And because they're very keen in fairy tales at these really quite stark divisions. Well, I think they often speak to splits that can occur. So sometimes we do have, again, if you think about this as sort of every character in the story represents a part of the self. So we might have operating our kind of way of mothering ourselves, being a woman. And if we think about her, this wicked self, being, being someone who really is quite cruel, you know, most people, how they mother themselves, if they were to mother a real person like that would probably get sent to jail. I mean, I say that flippantly, but the amount of people who, who don't let themselves sleep, who don't give themselves breaks, who don't feed themselves properly, who won't take themselves to the doctor, who make themselves have sexual relations with people that they don't really want to have. I mean, it's extraordinary. So it is almost like they have their own wicked stepmother inside their brain who yes. is giving them very negative mother energy. Exactly that. 
exactly that. And then often buried underneath is a different type of mother. Now, interestingly, Frau Holler in her history, she's she's a really old symbol. She doesn't just appear in this story in, in Scandinavian myths. I mean, she's ancient. She's pre kind of Thor and all those kind of gods. And she is linked with the feminine. She's linked with winter. She's linked with lost babies. So through kind of abortion or young life lost, that's her realm. And she's quite a tough woman. Like she's not, she's not an indulgent mother, but she's also alongside this toughness is incredible generosity and warmth. And she generally gives her children what they need and in abundance. So it's not what they want, but she gives them what they need in abundance. So why might the pretty girl, who in a sense has got everything going for her, she's pretty, she's hardworking, why might she need gold? And why might the lazy daughter need tar? Oh, that's a good question. Well, there's something about understanding worth, you know, that money is linked with value and understanding kind of your own value and having that in a currency that other people can connect with. Mm -hmm. That feels important. Because a lot of hardworking people, because, you know, my offices are full of high achieving, high working Mm. people, they sort of don't recognise their own goldenness, for want of a better word. They sort of can try and chart it by outside achievements, but that's different from internal gold because this is gold that's just spilling out of your mouth as you speak. It's sort of natural goldenness rather than, you know, the sort of goldenness that you've worked for by putting in a, a shift down at the spinning factory. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. And I think that being able to recognize the value of your own life, the value of your own way of communicating, the way of existing in the world. Yeah, I was going to say of being. Exactly. I mean, we live in really sad times, you know, where where lots of people just don't understand that. And I think there's something about this idea of the pitch or the tar on the ugly kind of lazy girl. Again, there's something very visible about that. And it makes me think of kind of tar and feathers. And there's, again, it, there's a communication there, isn't there? That there is something that she's carrying shame. Right. And I think that again is, in, is important. Not, not so that the person can be publicly shamed, but often we're not really aware of the shame that we carry. And, you know, the, the mother, the evil mother is interesting because she is a widow and, you know, widows didn't do very well. In, <laughs> I mean, they, it's not like they do well now, but, you know, being a single mother of two children is an incredibly difficult thing. Yep. And how do you survive? And where does your grief go? And so when we start to understand that these children are being raised and have been raised by a grieving woman who is under-resourced and vulnerable, and she's sort of got this split going, you know, about wanting, you know, a hardworking bit and then a bit that is lazy but has been sh- is carrying shame. And I'm thinking of black and tar as mm. mourning as well, isn't it? It's it's grief yeah. too. Grief is black, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And then it might, you know, tar it's hard to get off tar mm-hmm. on the skin. And both shame and grief are difficult to to just to flick off, aren't they? 
They are. And when you take them off, it leaves wounds. Mm. And so if we start to understand that the, the shame that this young girl is carrying has left her wounded, you know, that will leave her wounded. Because I don't think the story is the end of her story. And it also brings our attention to the fact that if you're covered in tar, it's not so easy to play. And that maybe the world needs to see that this part has a problem with playing because laziness can look like play. It can look like, oh, that person's having a nice time. But actually, often people that are lazy about something, it's actually because they don't know how to play. They don't know how to be creative. Or they're disconnected in some kind of way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the saddest thing of all, I'm doing a a future podcast on prison life, and it's about Mm. using philosophy in prison and everything. But one of the sad things that um, is just, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of almost want to cry as I say it, there are people who take toys into prison to teach the fathers how to play with toys so that when their children come to visit them, they know how to play with their children. So there are people who have never learnt how to play. And, you know, perhaps it's no surprise that they're the sort of people who end up in our prison service. But there is an actual need to teach adults how to play so they can play with their own children. And I think this is possibly what this story is telling us in a, in a sense that the value of play and you can't play if you're if you don't know how i think the story speaks to it too and it's interesting because there's these two sisters and i think it was tony morrison i might be wrong about this that said something like a sister is is sister is a version of yourself that isn't quite you it, it's something it's something like that a kind of alternate universe version of ourselves and we can see that there is a lesson for the older daughter who, who has matured, who is beautiful, who knows how to work. And her lesson is you need to live in the seasons. You need to see the task that's in front of you and do that. And also value your own goldenness as well. Well, I think they come together, you know, I think they come together, like you say. So it is chicken and egg, I think, because if we don't live in seasons, then we can't value our goldenness. Because of what a lot of people do who end up world weary is that when there is a problem, they move towards it with a solution. (laughs) They're like, oh, look, there's a pandemic. This is a great opportunity for me to develop a new hobby, a new craft, I'll start a support group. Maybe I'm going to start baking cakes and taking them everybody to all my neighbours. Like, And this all sounds wonderful. It's wonderful. But where is the person in that? Where is their need in that? Where is their understanding of what season they're in? And are they living in now or are they thinking about the reward they will get further down the line? Or, you know, if I work hard today, I will get gold tomorrow which is wonderful to think of the the golden city on the hill somewhere in the distance, mm. but we're still in the desert now. Exactly. And it becomes, and it's a sort of sneaky, it's a sneaky goal-orientated way of being because it is often really beautiful, like the things that people are engaged in. And there's something about limit setting within it. You can only do what you can do. And that's how you learn your value. You know, you learn your value by saying no and 
grieving the fact that you can't do everything. The, the younger principal, I think, doesn't know how to play, knows how to be lazy, but doesn't know how to play, doesn't know how to live life in the here and now and see its wonder. And so what, in a sense, I think these divisions are about, you know, we've got the, the lazy and the hardworking daughter, we've got the, the wicked stepmother and mm. the, uh, the generative mother, yeah. is we've somehow got to bring these together, haven't we? Mm. We've got to value all the bits of ourselves, which um, Jungians would, uh, would talk about the shadow side as well as the public persona sort of kind of side. We need to nurture both parts of ourselves. And how do you hold these things in sort of a bit more consciously? You know, and I guess that's in some ways, that's the gold falling out of the mouth and the tar. There's something very kind of public about these things. There's something's been made visible that was invisible. And I think this is where, you know, how do you do it? I think you do it through conversations like this. I think you do it through trying to connect with lots of different understandings about life. I think we do it through intentionally creating space to do these things. Everybody will have their own way of connecting with how do you create meaning. I'm a talker and I like people. I think there's something you said there that was really interesting that I want to bring up. You say there's lots of different understandings of life. Yeah. But perhaps when we are world-weary, we've got trapped in just one understanding of life. It's got yeah. to be like this. And maybe that was great 20 years ago, but it's not actually right for now, back to your seasons. So that if we're stuck with one understanding of life, number one, make certain you know exactly what that is, which might be hard work gets rewards. And you need to challenge whether that is true mm. and whether actually. <laughs> That's meaningful for you because, you know, do you want, do you want the rewards? You know, when you actually think about what the rewards are, do you actually want them that much? So maybe world weariness is being stuck to one understanding of how you should live your life. And the story is sort of telling us there are many ways of leading your life. And maybe there are unexpressed parts of yourself that are a little bit sort of depressed. Because I think mm. the lazy daughter could be not lazy because she's sitting there on the couch eating chocolates, but because she's depressed and has got no energy. I think that's a really astute observation. And yes, I think that people, when they're weary, often have become just exhausted by, you know, trying and trying the same thing over and over again, or trying to get the same result over and over again. They might have tried all sorts of different ways you know, to skin the same cat. And, and, and it's just not happening. And at what point do you try and let something new in? And it does often require a bit of a collapse. I think actually there's a sort of a falling down the well, falling down the well that the thing, the spinning wheel that worked so well for you, something's lost. It's covered in blood. That's not a good sign, really, is it? Not really, no. And and <laughs> but it's too much. Something too much has happened. And she ends up in a new land that she doesn't recognise. She doesn't know how to be there. That requires a lot of gentleness with ourselves. And I think, you know, lots of people have thought, 
I'm going to do this job and that's going to get me there. Or this relationship, I'm going to put all my energy into it and that's going to be the thing that gets me to the good life. Or being a parent, you know, I'm going to put all my energy into being the best mother I can be. And then things don't go as you plan. And then what? And you keep trying and you keep trying and you keep trying. And the more the tr- you try, the worse it gets. So a part of it is falling down a well. It is getting lost and, and it being able to acknowledge it. And I think the other thing just to mention is that particularly around play is a lot of us have kind of ruling principles that to justify doing something, you have to be good at it. Something only has value if it can be appreciated by other, if not many people. <laughs> or turned into it turned into a job or something like that. Oh, it has to be useful. You have to be useful. And, you know, some, somebody else has to want it and it has to be of use in some way. And I think that is one of the most terrible, terrible things that we tell ourselves and encourage other people to think. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter because I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. It's a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts on building a more meaningful relationship. If you'd like to find out more, you'd like to join in, get a weekly newsletter from me on such subjects as the greatest moments from the first hundred episodes that we've uh, done, this is how you do it. You go to themeaningfullife.substack.com and sign up. The details will also be in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find out how to contact us. Let me tell you, you go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, and you'll find a way of giving us feedback or a dilemma that you've got at the moment. And this dilemma this week has come from a woman. What can I do? My relationship with my partner's broken down and we can't talk about anything anymore. He thinks I'm attacking when I'm just concerned about how he's doing. I know he's not my responsibility, but I still care for him. But he's not accepted any responsibility for the end of the relationship or apologised for anything. I've been through a whole list of things I did and told him I'm sorry. What do you do when you know someone desperately needs to go to therapy, but they won't listen or tell you they're too busy? He sends me lots of emails full of abuse and I have blocked him. But we're in contact again to sort out the handover of stuff that's at each other's places but he keeps on switching plans and cancelling. Do you think he doesn't want our relationship to end? I do want my things back. I seem blocked at every turn. Well, I think this is somebody who needs to fall down a well, really, isn't it? (laughs) I don't mean that literally, but they need a a new way of looking at things, don't they? Yeah, well, I was just thinking maybe it's somebody who's down a well and doesn't realise it. Ah, right. (laughs) That, That there's something a bit kind of stuck going on, isn't there? And my heart goes out to her. I mean, I'm Mm. really, I'm familiar with this story, not this particular person's, but it's something I've heard kind of quite a few times. And it's such a confusing and painful place to be, actually. 
And it sounds like she's confused. It sounds like there's a real wish to still care for this man and to sort of keep a dialogue going with him. And it sounds like he doesn't know what he wants either, that there's sort of chaos going on. And I suppose if she were here, I would be really interested in what is it that she actually wants? Because it sounds like there's a fantasy version of him being okay and sort of maybe she wants to get back together with him or not, I'm not sure. But there's certainly a lot of aggression there, isn't there? So I'd wonder why about that. But, you know, what is it that she wants and where is she in it? Like, what's going on in her life? Why? What's next for her? Letting go is really difficult, isn't it? Mm, Yeah. And it's really hard, you know, I can hear the words, you know, that she knows he's not her responsibility. I, I can really hear that. But it sounds like care has got confused with having to kind of get involved. And I think a lot of us, it takes a long time to realise that being helpful sometimes is an incredibly unhelpful thing to do. I'm just immediately having a a feeling that we've got one person here, but I wonder if in a fairy tale sort of kind of way, we can sort of divide her into two parts. Hmm. So we've got sort of an industrious, wants to help sort of part. And yeah. we've got a, a lazy part who actually says, you know, I've had enough of this and I want to go. Hmm. Possibly lazy isn't the right word, but a, a stand back version and says, you know, I've finished with this, goodbye. And we've got the hardworking hmm. self. I, th- I think that's a really good observation that she's, there's a bit of her that knows how to work at relationship, isn't there? It's kind of like, okay, we need to have a conversation and he needs to be okay. And let's just get the communication going. And she's done her part. She's and she's her spinning away, isn't she? Spinning, spinning, spinning away. And I kind of want to go, oh dear, your hands are bleeding. Like yes. this, this is, this is, you need to stop. And then there's this other part. And I think, you know, lazy is a hard word. And I wonder if, if we, again, think about the story and anchor into that, that it is maybe around shame, that there might be a shame. It can feel incredibly shameful for a relationship to end. And there is quite a bit of basically shaming backwards and forwards, isn't there? Mm. I'm sure his letters, of uh, his emails of abuse are saying, you did this, you did that, shaming her. And the natural tendency if somebody shames us is we give them another set of shame back, don't we? Exactly. And we give shame back. We can also feel like, well, what kind of a person puts up with abuse and can't leave? And Mm -hmm. so we shame each other that way. And we shame ourselves because we can't leave, even though the person is, you know, being abusive, according to this. Yeah. And so there's there's, this sort of blocks at every turn, but I wonder if it's shame at every turn. Mm. And the lazy part, I would say, I wonder if it's there's a little bit of laziness about being compassionate to herself. Yes. She can find compassion for him. You know, this is almost like the wicked stepmother. Like she can find compassion for him, but she's a little bit too indulgent of the, oh, just get on with it. You know, it doesn't matter. Do whatever. And she's not maybe practiced enough at having compassion for herself and saying, this is hard. This is painful. It's awful to try something and it doesn't work out. Probably everything will be okay. Maybe it won't be, but you'll work it out. You know, life is hard. 
And there is a bit of compassion that, in fact, is going out to him. You know, I want to sort him out and make certain he's okay and Mm. compassion there. How much compassion is there for herself? Exactly. And that bit is the split. And I honestly think, and I said this earlier, but, you know, when people really look at how they parent themselves, if they were doing it to an external person, I mean, my God, it, it would be a need to call social services or the police or something, you know, people can be incredibly abusive. And one way that we think, you know, people talk about boundaries as if they have to be these tough love kind of things. But actually for me, I I think boundaries at their most potent, they happen with gentleness. It's like, come on, this needs to stop. You know, you need to let go. If he really is interested and you still want it, and there's no reason why you should, but he'll find you. Well, I hope that this very weird way of looking at it has um, has provided you something different. I mean, I'm sure that none of your friends have given you this kind of advice. So, and that's the beauty of fairy tales. So, Libby, thank you very much for going down the well with me today. I have to ask you, as a witness on the meaningful life, what makes your life meaningful? I think for me, I mean, I really like people. I like people. I used to think liking people was liking people tidied up. (laughs) You know, a kind of a clean version of people. But actually, I just like people. And I like our mess and messiness. And so just exploring that, I think, gives my life meaning. And then on a very very personal note, I I think family and friends and relationship. And and that's, that's everything. I love that. The joy of messiness. Mm. Well, we're going to have a messy ending because it's not a real ending. Because if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, you can uh, continue with us in our bonus material. On the bonus material today, we're going to be looking at the myths associated with queens, because this programme is being recorded during the morning period of Her Majesty the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. But as well as being a person, she's also a symbol. And we're going to unpack the whole idea of symbols and queens, because if there's a lot of spinning in fairy tales, there's even more queens than spinners. So we're going to be talking about that. I'm also going to be finding out three things that Libby knows deep down to be true. So we'd love you to join us for that. There are a variety of different ways that you can access the bonus material. You can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. Don't forget, we're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and help us fund these programmes, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. 
Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.